a teenage girl is writing, my mind is filled with worry. It scares me. I can't seem to shake this sense of unease I fear. Do you sympathize with that? Well, without context, it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because while some fears seem legitimate, many modern teenage fears, well, they just seem uh, rather pathetic. Take, for example, four modern teenage fears that have all been officially documented in the last decade. Uh, number one, Iraqi butrophobia, the fear that some teenagers have when eating a PJ sandwich because Iraqi butteryophobia is the modern fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Do you feel any sympathy? What about number two? Poganophobia, a fear which has uh, some teenagers diving behind the couch whenever they see Santa or Abraham Lincoln or even Brock Flowers. For poganophobia is the modern fear of beards. Do you feel any sympathy? What about number three? Hippopotamo monstro esquipdaliophobia, aptly the power sapping modern fear of long words in English class. <laughs> and finally, number four, perhaps most pathetic fear of all, which researchers now say affects over half of teenagers nomophobia, the modern fear of a low cell phone battery. Well, with such modern fears in mind, it's easy for us to fear no sympathy for the fearful today. But you know, that quote that I began with came from no uh, sandwich scaredy cat or any wimp without Wi-Fi, but rather a bright and confident teenage girl who wrote to a British newspaper after the Paris terrorist attacks of 2015, which saw 137 people die. And her letter to the Independent reads as follows. Dear Sir, my mind was immediately filled with worry as I watched what was happening in Paris. I may only be 16, but I am more informed of what's going on in this barbaric world. And truthfully, it scares me. I truly worry about my future if these sadistic incidents become commonplace. Can the government who are meant to protect people like me, the children in society, honestly say we're safe? As a teenager, I'm meant to be carefree, but I can't seem to shake this sense of unease. The world as we know it is changing, and I fear. Yours sincerely, Miss Laura Delaney. Do you feel any sympathy? I'm sure we all do. It's been nine years ago since I read her letter, and Laura is no longer a teenager. And yet since then, she and we have seen more terrorism across Europe, more wars across Central Asia, more political unrest here in the United States, and even school attacks in our very city. Accordingly, Laura Delaney well articulates where many of our fears are at as we look at the power of evil in 2024. And so if you're there with Laura, fearing overwhelming evil, empathizing with the fearful, then you're ready for our passage. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, look down with me. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. 
And leaving the crowd, they, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark, our first century author, is wonderfully factual. Mark doesn't overhype the story with sensationalism. As many journalists today, Mark is a historian. Indeed, his account reads almost like a police report. He notes the time, verse 35, evening had come. He notes that the random eyewitness evidence, verse 38, Jesus is asleep on a cushion. The account is unadorned, brutally and brilliantly reliable. Reads not like a myth, but like history. And if you and I had been born in the right time, the right place, we could have stood on that Galilean shoreline and watched the storm rolled in. But the potential pitfall of Mark's emotionless police report is that many of us perhaps fail to empathize with the depth of fear that is on display here. So picture with me with a bit more emotion, that first scene. Jesus had been teaching all day. He signs the last autograph and he gets in the boat, which was in all probability a Galilean fishing boat. And these boats, as archaeological evidence suggests, were about 25 feet by 6 feet. So not massive. And there's obviously no electricity. And during this, this evening escapade, they're traveling a number of miles here. And the lake itself, situated in modern-day Israel, is like a sink surrounded by really large mountains. And so if you imagine kind of aiming a hairdryer at at the sides of a bowl of water, you, you kind of get the picture of what's going on here. So here they are, small boat, long way, pitch black, and verse 37, waves fill their little boat such that these experienced and hardy fishermen are scared out of their minds. Indeed, can you, can you picture the fear? One disciple with all the color drained out of his face grabs Jesus by the lapels in a blind panic. Verse 38, don't you care? We're perishing. The furious storm is so powerful. The fishermen are so powerless. And the fear is so overpowering. And yet, that is perhaps not the scariest story in this section, is it? For chapter 5, verse 2, look down again. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived amongst the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The fear-inducing power is, is no longer physical but spiritual as Jesus is, is pr- approached with a, by a man with an evil spirit. Now, I don't want to spend long here, but let me make four very quick points about spirits. Uh, firstly, ev- evil spirits are real. The world that we live in is not just physical. There is a spiritual dimension to it. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, humanity often falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. 
Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they don't take him seriously enough. And secondly, although demons are still around today, when Jesus is around, they are especially manifest. Thirdly, demons destroy the good work of God. As we see in the rest of Mark chapter 4, demons snatch up gospel seed when it's sown. They try to blind people in, in their understanding of Jesus. And demons also tempt Christians to despair at sin. And as a result, fourthly, the Bible says that demons are overwhelming. Now, not so overwhelming that a person no longer functions as themselves, that the man here is not a puppet. He, he runs to Jesus in distress. But clearly, in some circumstances, they can act very, very powerfully. And here is case in point, for look at what these demons do. They overwhelm this man's home life. The man lives in the tombs, his house. It is a place where the dead are buried. And these demons overwhelm his social life. When, when people visit him, he fights them. Such that his friends and his family try chaining him like an animal. And yet the demons continue to overwhelm him. Verse 5, he cries out. And he cuts himself. Indeed, so horrific is this man's life that, that it is hard to pick out which of the two situations you'd rather be in. Would you rather be in the boat, in the storm, in the dark? Or would you be more fearful by the beach when a bleeding man comes running at you with broken chains? Well, I don't think we're really meant to choose because both frightening events are about the same thing. Fear of overwhelming evil, fear of overwhelming evil. For the markers of overwhelming evil, well, they're everywhere in both accounts. In the first account, there's the engulfing darkness and the, and the raging seas, and the, in the second account, tombstones and blood and, and a man that no one can chain. And in nearly every culture, these things are associated with evil. Darkness is constantly pictured as evil in the Bible. Darkness fills the land when Christ dies. And in the Old Testament, the sea is a, is a metaphor for evil. Ancient cultures believed that evil beasts lived in them. And tombs remind all humanity of death. And so the evil that humanity commits. And finally, there's blood. Throughout all human history, blood is a picture of evil. In the Bible, blood pictures our guilt against God. And so all these things work together in this story to, to highlight that evil is present. And not just present, but overwhelmingly present. The two accounts remind us that evil is powerful. The two accounts remind us that, that the evil often overwhelms us in this world. And that accordingly, there are moments when we feel overwhelmed like Laura. But if you think about it, so many, so many of our fears are linked to evil. Fear of evil people scoffing at us or our children in public, shooting at us or our children in public. We, we fear the evil that, that we could commit, committing adultery and so, and so wrecking our families, committing fraud and so wrecking our careers. Fear when, if we're our most honest, of meeting a perfectly holy and just God with all the evil that we think about and say. Friends, we're surrounded by evil. And so by ourselves, as Laura correctly wrote, this world is often frightening. This world is often frightening. 
But wonderfully, both stories don't end there, do they? For the point of them is not that evil overwhelms, in fact, quite the opposite. For the story at the sea doesn't end with the disciples going under the waves. And the story by the beach doesn't end with a bleeding man dying in Jesus' arms. No, for in both accounts, we also learn freedom from overwhelming fear. Freedom from overwhelming fear. For Jesus frees from all that causes fear. And that's just very apparent, isn't it? For everything changes in just a moment with Jesus. That the power of evil displayed at the sea, it doesn't fade away slowly. The storm doesn't gradually die down after the disciples just keep bailing out the water. And likewise, that the man doesn't slowly just integrate himself back into society after years of counseling with the disciples. Indeed, just stare at the beauty and the speed of these before and after pictures. Chapter 4, verse 39. Jesus awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. Similarly, in chapter 5, after dramatically removing these evil spirits from the man, sending them into the lake, an overwhelmed and desperate man, who, who, who minutes ago was face down in the sand, naked, with chains and blood all around his hands, is now seen moments later, verse 15, have a look at it, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And friends, honestly, honestly, this is probably my favorite verse in all scripture. For what a lovely picture of what happens when someone comes to Christ. What what transformation we may expect to see in the most hopeless. What peace the anxious and the desperate and the fearful find in Jesus, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. The man is now as calm as the the waters of the night before. But but again, to understand the the greatness of these events, to understand how we may be equally calm, we must remember exactly what Christ is demonstrating his power over. For these accounts do not mean that Jesus' followers will never suffer disaster at sea, no pause shipwrecked a number of times, nor do these stories mean that Jesus' followers will be entirely free from the devil's schemes in life. Again, Paul speaks about being attacked by Satan. However, when we recall that the seas and the spirits and the darkness and the tombs and the blood and how they all represent evil, we are to remember that Jesus demonstrates that he has ultimate power over evil and hence the power to set us free from overwhelming fear. For Jesus deals with the roots of so many of our fears because Jesus overpowers evil. Indeed, Jesus is evidently more powerful, isn't he? There's no contest between evil and Jesus here. There's no overtime. It's not a full five sets at Flushing Meadows. It's not the full 12 rounds in a boxing match. It's just no contest. Jesus just opens his mouth. Wind, waves, shh. Legion of demons over there. And so in a sense, our fear of evil on our own is irrational. Is rational. For we are often evil. 
and others are often evil, and Satan is obviously evil, and so fear is, it is rational, but with Christ, our fears are irrational, for Christ is more powerful. He has the power to rid us from evil. He has the power to rid others from evil. He has the power to, to rid us from the evil one such that we may be free. For the Bible teaches that Jesus supremely triumphed over all evil, not at the lake, but at the cross. Colossians 2.14, God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of evil that stood against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the spiritual authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The famous theologian, John Murray hence describes Jesus' work on the cross in this way. He says, the work of Christ is essentially a work of destruction that terminates the power and work of Satan. This is not a peripheral or incidental feature of redemption. It is an integral aspect of its accomplishment. Christ has destroyed the powers of evil at the cross. So friends, can you see how powerful Jesus is? And can you see that, that Jesus provides a far better hope than anything this world has to offer us when it comes to relief from fear of evil? For Jesus dies, and in so doing, defeats all evil. Jesus takes away the penalty of all the evil that overwhelms us. For we need not fear God if we are dressed in Christ's righteousness. And Jesus takes away the power of all evil that overwhelms us. We are no longer chained by our sin, but we are now in our right minds. And soon he will take away the presence of evil that overwhelms us often. Satan will soon be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And now we sit in our right minds and we wait. Moreover, therefore, can you see that, that Jesus is able to calm our fears better than any other, certainly better than any powerful political party or politician. Indeed, shortly after the Paris attacks of, of 2015, I was really struck by what the British Prime Minister said at the time, David Cameron. For moments after the Paris attacks, he went on TV and he said the bomb in Paris, that that could have been London. And I can't stand here and say that we're safe from all these threats. We are not. I can't stand here and say we will remove the threat through the action we take. But friends, for, for, for those of us in Christ who have trusted in his cross, decisive action has already been taken. Friends, if we trust in Christ, whatever the situation, we need not ultimately be afraid of evil. Instead, amazingly, we get to be like the man in verse 15, sitting here, dressed in our right minds. We may have freedom from feeling overwhelmed by evil, because quite simply, Jesus is more powerful. So what should we do very practically? What does Jesus want from us? Well, three very quick things that Jesus calls us to from these two stories. And the first of these, quite simply, is faith. In verse 40, we get the first mention of a very key word in Mark's gospel, a word that comes up again and again, faith. Jesus said to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In Mark's gospel thus far, the disciples have kind of been on the inside track. 
that they've been chosen and they've been taught and they've been given insight into his parables. But here, Jesus is irritated with them. In fact, this is probably the most annoyed that Jesus has ever been with anyone in Mark's gospel so far. And can you see the reason here? You see, Jesus doesn't just expect his disciples to just be absorbing knowledge about him passively. These facts about him are meant to be producing faith in them. They're not simply to have facts about who Jesus is. They are to have faith in Jesus. They're to put their trust in him. Accordingly, friends, if you've been coming here listening for many months about the words and actions of Jesus, or maybe you're a teenager here, and you've been coming along to Sunday school for years now, I hope that you have not just merely grown in knowledge about Jesus. I hope you've grown in trust about Jesus. Grown in a desire to trust Jesus no matter what. Whether you're feeling the evil that you see in yourself, or whether you're feeling the evil that you see in other people, whether you're feeling overwhelmed by Satan's accusations against you for friends, that's what Jesus looks for. He looks for that which is seen in the man on the beach and not what is seen on the men in the boat. For the demon-possessed man, overwhelmed with evil, he helplessly runs to Jesus for healing. He trusts nothing else but him. Look at verse 6. Mark paints it beautifully. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, he fell before him. But it's very different with the disciples, isn't it? For back up to verse 38, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care, Jesus? What an appalling question. Of course Jesus cared. The very reason he taught that day was in the boat now, was headed for the cross. The disciples were to trust him in every season because they knew the whole plan. And so my fellow disciples of Jesus, let me assure you, let me assure you that there will be times in your life when something very frightening will flood in that there'll be moments when we feel so overwhelmed by some evil, an evil that someone has done to us, or, or perhaps an evil that we have committed, or perhaps an evil that suddenly just bursts into our lives because we live in a broken world. And hence there will be times when fear may cause us to doubt God's ability to take care of us. And it's in those moments too that we must continue to have faith in Jesus. Not an emotionless faith, a faith that doesn't cry out, not, not a blind, empty faith, a, a whistling in the dark kind of faith, but a confident faith that trusts the evidence here, that trusts that Jesus is powerful, that he has defeated all evil at the cross, and therefore that he will. He will land us safely on the other side, and we can completely lean on him. Faith in him is what Jesus looks for in everyone here. Maybe it's time you put your faith in him today. However, that's not the only right response to Jesus, is it? For secondly, the second right response comes at the end of both accounts. And to see if you can spot it, let me just ask you a question. When are Jesus' disciples, and when are the people of the Gerasenes most frightened? Is it when the first wave rocks the boat? Is it when the man cries out and starts to cut himself? No. It's actually, in both cases, when Jesus showcases his power. 
For it's when the waters are actually as, as, as still as Radna Lake, then verse 41, then they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this? The wind and the sea obey him. Similarly, it is whence the once possessed demon man is fully clothed and having a morning croissant with Peter that the crowd is petrified. Verse 14, people came out and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Verse 17, they're so afraid and they asked Jesus to leave. A few years ago, I recall, laugh, I recall laughing with a friend of mine because he'd been reading at the gospel to his three-year-old son. And after finishing at one of the gospels, he said to his son, so what do you think of Jesus? And his son replied, well, he's a bit scary. And in all seriousness, it's quite an insightful response, isn't it? For Jesus, in a sense, is frightening. Now, of course, having read of his frightening power, we're not to ask Jesus to go away, like the crowd, we're to run to him, like the man, trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But, but another right response here is fear. For as the disciples say, who is this? The wind and the wave obey him. Friends, you, you can't just keep baby Jesus in the Christmas crib. Jesus is no meek and mild child forever, nor is he an easily manipulated grandparent. He is the king of creation, and we're to fear him. Indeed, fearing Jesus is actually the medicine that Mark prescribes all who are overwhelmed with fear. For Mark seems to say that when you begin to fear Jesus, then the things that, that are less powerful than him will slowly start to fade into the background. Indeed, one of the most helpful uh, Christian books that I've ever read on fear and anxiety is by a Christian psychologist called Ed Welch. And in his book, Welch counsels the fearful, not by just telling them to just stop it, but rather to replace those fears with a fear of Jesus. And hence in his book, when people are big and God is small, he recommends that people prone to fear should look for Jesus' powerful acts in Scripture and read of Jesus' frightening justice and meditate on passages just like this. For in his own words, Welch said, the person who fears God will fear nothing else. The person who fears God will fear nothing else. And so friends, we're to fear Jesus, not to be frightened of him, not to hide from him, but rather work at a growing awe and reverence of him. Right response one, faith. Right response two, fear. And finally, final thing that Jesus looks for, freely speaking. Freely speaking of Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 18, look down one final time. As Jesus was getting into the boat, a man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy upon you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Friends, our time is gone.
don't need long on these final verses. The point is very obvious. If we have been freed from all evil by Jesus, if we've been freed from all our own evil through Jesus' death on the cross, if in God's mercy we get to turn on the news and know how this evil world ends, if we get to pray to an all-powerful God in full assurance of where we're headed, where, where evil will be no more, if we really believe that, then yes, we'll want to be with Jesus right away. We'll long for heaven. Just like the man here will instantly want to get in the boat with Jesus and, and sail off into eternity. But when we hear the powerful command of the one who has freed us to tell others how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy upon you, then surely, while we are in this fearful world, we'll do that, won't we? Won't we? We'll speak freely about Jesus. If we've been freed from the most fearful thing, God's wrath, we won't fear other people. No, we're going to love other people. We'll love those fearful teenagers, like 16-year-old Laura, paralyzed by terrorism. And we'll love our often fearful children, overwhelmed with fear about perhaps going to school. And we'll love our fearful work colleagues when they worry and they read all that's going on in the news. And fearful people in our neighborhoods, broken by evil done against them or by them. We will love fearful people because we will remember that we used to be like them once, running around, overwhelmed by evil. And yet now in God's mercy, sitting here, clothed, and in our right minds. We'll speak freely about Jesus because we love other people and because the one who has freed us, Jesus, wants us to obey him and tells us to run back into the towns and the villages of our lives that he's put us in for a season to tell others how much he has done for us. Let's pray that we might do this. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we live in a very broken world. We often feel overwhelmed by the evil that we see around us, even in us. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your Son, for the firm foundation of his life and his work. Father, we thank you that, that, that we who have fled to him may be free from the evil that overwhelms us often. Father, we thank you that we are kept by his finished work, by his grace displayed to us ultimately the cross. And so we thank you that if we fear Christ, we may endure the deep waters of evil and yet not be overwhelmed by sorrow. For we know where we're headed, to that final shore, to a place where evil will be no more. And so, Father, would you help us to lean on Jesus, lean on him more and more, and as we do so, to share the wonderful news of him and all that he has done. We ask and pray this for your glory. Amen.